This is I'm Really Rich Forbes on Trump on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Maggie McGrath. On this show, we're diving into the world of Trump through the eyes and ears of Forbes reporters. We'll focus on the 45th president's impact on the economy, business, and wealth here in America and around the world. In this week's episode, we're going to take a look at the three men who defined Trump's 11th week in office. There's Steve Bannon, the former Breitbart editor, who became one of the White House's chief strategists and controversially was a member of the National Security Council until just last week. Then there's Judge Neil Gorsuch, President Trump's choice to fill Antonin Scalia's seat on the Supreme Court. And finally, Scott Gottlieb. He's the man poised to become the next commissioner of the FDA. Let's dive on in. Here now in the studio are Forbes reporters Madeline Berg and Noah Kirsch. Maddie and Noah work on different teams here. Maddie covers the entertainment industry, and Noah is part of the wealth team. They've recently joined forces to determine the net worth of Steve Bannon. Bannon is the former editor of Breitbart, an alt-right website, and one of Trump's closest and most controversial advisors. Maddie, let's start with the numbers. How wealthy is Steve Bannon? We know about how much he's worth. Thanks to a document dump last Friday, we know he's worth between $9.5 million and $48 million. For people who know Steve Bannon, they do probably know him because of his role at Breitbart. But, Maddie, you were brought into his valuation in the beginning because of a connection to Seinfeld. Tell us, how does Seinfeld factor into this guy's career? He did a deal, his boutique investment firm, Bannon & Co., did a deal back in 1993 when Castle Rock, which produced Seinfeld, was transferred from Westinghouse Electric to Ted Turner. Rather than being paid in all cash, she got a share of five shows, including then-nascent Seinfeld. Seinfeld blew up. It's worth about $3.26 billion in syndication alone. So how much of his overall net worth does Seinfeld account for? We unfortunately do not know how much he got, how much he spent for, how much he has spent of that cash he originally got. But if he owned just 1%, it would have been $32.6 million. Those are the top line numbers. Let's get to more about the man himself for the people who haven't really heard of him. Noah, who is Steve Bannon? What's his background? Well, he has a really unique trajectory. He started in the Navy, then he went to Goldman Sachs before starting his own media-focused boutique investment firm, Bannon & Company, very aptly named. And then after that was sold to Cowan & Company in 1998, he moved out to Hollywood and started producing films. He became an increasingly influential political figure, especially after he joined Breitbart News. And he basically landed in his current role straight from there. Let's just take a step back now that we've kind of covered the basics. I'll start with Maddie. Why do we care about Steve Bannon and what he's worth? He has stakes in some really questionable outlets. He does not have a stake in Breitbart News, but because he comes from this alt-right outlet, it's concerning that he has the ear of the president. Um, People say he really is pulling the strings when it comes to Trump. It's really important to know where these people have their money because they might make decisions that influence either their worth or the worth of their competitors. And Breitbart, of course, has uh, peddled a few conspiracy theories, some articles that have been deemed as espousing the thoughts of white supremacists. That's why we care. And ultimately, you had said, Maddie, Despite his involvement in the running of Breitbart, is he still reaping money from the organization? Um, Well, he did make $191,000 in a salary just last year for serving as the executive chairman. As of now, his filings show he owns no stake in the company. It's not clear if he had owned a stake 
prior to kind of coming on as part of Trump's administration. We should note, by the way, Maddie, that Breitbart News, like a lot of Bannon's projects, is, is pretty closely affiliated with the Mercer family. Robert Mercer is an extraordinarily wealthy hedge fund executive from Renaissance Technologies, um, and he and his daughter, Rebecca, are both really influential donors, especially in the conservative space. They've also funded the Government Accountability Institute, which Bannon drew a salary from last year as well, also very right-leaning. So they've been involved in funding a lot of his projects. Including Breitbart. While we don't know who exactly owns Breitbart, we do know Rebecca Mercer owns a good chunk. So it sounds like what we have here is a very wealthy American family that has given money to Breitbart, which has produced Steve Bannon, and then he has drawn money from organizations that have also benefited from the Mercers. Is that correct? So it's definitely a complicated web. I can tell you that the Mercer family has their hands in a lot of Bannon's different ventures, almost all of them very, very right-leaning. Now, of course, I read your story on all of this, but I I wasn't totally aware of just how much of a supporting role the Mercer family has had in the creation of Breitbart, which is an alt-right news site, as we have said, which has peddled conspiracy theories and white supremacist thinking. So we have the Mercers funding Breitbart. Noah, what else have they been involved in? Well, it's pretty clear quite early on that they have their hands in a lot of different conservative political activity. They've helped fund the Government Accountability Institute, which paid Bannon $61,000 last year. That's a right-leaning nonprofit. They've also helped fund the Cambridge Analytica, which is a data analytics firm that supposedly helped find trends among different sects of the population in order to help turn out on the right during this election. Interesting. We've covered Breitbart. We've covered Seinfeld. We've covered his salary from the nonprofit space. But he's also involved in films. Maddie, tell us about Bannon Films. Yeah, so uh, Bannon actually went to Hollywood uh, after finance, and he financed a lot of films. Most of them have some kind of political or religious bent. He financed a film about Sarah Palin, a film about Reagan, and most recently his company, Bannon Film Industries, financed Clinton Cash um, based on the book Clinton Cash, The Untold Story of How and Why Foreign Governments and Businesses Helped Make Bill and Hillary Rich. Obviously, it's an anti-Clinton film, and that company that produced it is worth between $1 million and $5 million. So his political beliefs are evident in film, in the nonprofit space, really everything he's done. Yeah, and I I think after the Trump administration is done, um, it's going to be really interesting to watch the media and entertainment space for Batten's next move. Now, let's take a step back as to how you got all of these numbers, because Forbes, when we do our valuations... We talk to analysts. We request financial filings. In your cases, you had been working on the Bannon file for the past several weeks. Is that correct, Maddie? Actually, I originally took a stab at it in November, back when it was revealed that he owned a stake of Seinfeld. And then Noah kind of jumped on board a couple weeks ago. We decided to re-up the project because Bannon is so influential that we really wanted to kind of lock this down. And what had happened? You were getting stonewalled. They weren't answering. And then suddenly... You start hearing about the White House uh, financial disclosure documents that might be coming out. So um, actually, last Friday, I decided to call up the Office of Government Ethics and see if they had any information on Bannon, because we were just getting stonewalled at every turn. turned out that that night, they said the White House was supposed to release documents regarding Bannon. They didn't know if it was guaranteed to happen. They didn't know what time they would be released. So Noah and I really um, were on standby on Friday night, kind of waiting for the filings to come out. 
Now, Noah, you kind of had to get a little creative to actually get a hold of these documents because of who had received them originally and where the White House was putting them. So I should note that, first of all, the Trump administration employed this age-old political strategy of sending out this controversial material late on a Friday evening, hoping that all journalists had returned home for the weekend already. But essentially, we put in a request for these documents, and we didn't really receive them on Friday. But news started to break from the New York Times and other publications with material from these filings published in them. But there was actually this amazing uh, moment of journalistic collaboration where ProPublica and the New York Times and a few other publications started aggregating all of these financial disclosures and distributing them openly to the media in general. So that's actually how we first accessed them. We found Bannon's filings and, and we started to dig through them. What time was this on Friday? It felt pretty late. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would say we kind of started digging at around 10, 1030. Uh, we published around one. It was a late night. And you collaborated over, I heard, over speakerphone to get the story out. Yeah, many hours of collaboration on the phone. So just for people who don't deal in media and news breaking and financial disclosures, what had happened was the White House had agreed to provide information about the financial dealings of a certain number of its employees, basically. Noah, is that right? So in addition to publishing these files late on Friday evening, the Trump administration also cleverly decided that instead of listing all the officials who had provided the White House with financial disclosures, they were just going to leave it up to journalists to guess. And so they had this blank space and you had to fill in individually all of the specific people that you wanted financial disclosures from. So that left it to journalists literally to put in dozens, if not hundreds of different names, uh, seeking filings. We were specifically interested in Steve Bannon. We also requested files for Jared Kushner and a couple of other people. I actually only received one filing back, and I received it back on Sunday evening. So if not for the collaboration from ProPublica and others, it would have been a much more delayed reporting process, probably intentionally. So, You guys were almost lucky in a sense that you were focusing on one person because presumably journalists across the country were just plugging in the names of White House officials and employees trying to guess, was this part of the name... Was this part of the document dump? Was someone else in this? And Maddie, can you talk to that? Yeah, absolutely. Even, you know, the New York Times, who had gotten some of the documents first with ProPublica, they didn't publish their final piece of kind of a list of this is what's come out in these financial disclosures until many hours after the initial documents came out, just because it takes a really long time to go through and just really guess and check. So we know that these financial disclosures are out and they're there for the public to comb through and other journalists to, to look and to find out how much certain members of the White House are worth and what their financial dealings have been. We know that Steve Bannon, one of President Trump's closest advisors, is worth between $9.5 million and $48 million. Noah, what's next? Well, we know that Bannon is very unlikely to leave the media cycle anytime soon. Even just today, this morning, he was removed from his role on the National Security Council, which was a very controversial uh, position that he held briefly for just a couple of months. But we expect him to maintain enormous influence within the Trump White House. And so as a result, we'll continue to track him very closely. Maddie, what about you? Are you going to keep digging into that Seinfeld stake? Absolutely. Um, it's really quite amazing what he made from this little show about nothing. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. Noah, Maddie, thanks so much for joining me. On Friday, April 7th, 2017, the U.S. Senate voted to confirm Judge Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. He was confirmed by a simple majority vote of 54 to 45. 
This result comes after a brutal 14 months of partisan bickering. In 2016, following the death of Judge Antonin Scalia, Republicans refused to grant President Obama's nominee to the court, Merrick Garland, so much as a hearing. Then, earlier this week, Democrats tried to block Gorsuch from the court by denying him the 60 votes necessary to advance. Republicans then changed the rules of the Senate in a way that allowed Judge Gorsuch to be confirmed by a simple majority vote. And because of that simple majority vote, it is Gorsuch and not Garland who will fill Scalia's spot on the highest bench in the land. In anticipation of this confirmation, I hopped on the phone earlier this week with Dan Fisher. He's a senior editor at Forbes who covers the intersection of law and business. We talked about the effect Gorsuch might have on the court and what he means in particular for business. I think if you want to understand Judge Gorsuch, just look at John Roberts. I I think the two of them are in a very similar mold, uh, Alito as well. And I don't know if you can call it a new way of thinking, but it's definitely it's a combination of Scalia's originalism, you know, reading the text of, of the law that Congress passed, which seemed like a radical idea some years ago. But now, you know, even the liberals on the court admit that that's that pretty much how they do business, which is a huge change from the 60s and 70s. So <clears throat> originalism plus a certain pragmatism. I I think I see this in Gorsuch, and maybe more pragmatism than you see in a Thomas or even an Alito. So uh, if people want another Scalia, they might be a little surprised. But business may not want another Scalia. I I would say that um, what you get with Gorsuch is more predictability, and business loves predictability. Interesting. Tell me more about why business might not want another Scalia and why Gorsuch might be a win for them. Scalia was a bit a bit of a loose cannon. I, I think the one decision that really sticks in my mind is, well, first of all, he loved Chevron deference. We'll get back to that. But uh, there was a, a case involving a, uh, a, a, a pharmaceutical injury. And, you know, the, the pharmaceutical had five labels that are already warning against this side effect. And then uh, a jury in Vermont decided that, well, maybe a sixth or a seventh might have prevented this injury. It was clearly a case of medical malpractice, not a drug defect. Um, Scalia pretty much, in some of his conservative cohorts, took a very hard line that, that state courts should be able to operate sort of freely, free of uh, federal second-guessing. So even in an egregious case where uh, you know, the, the, the evidence really was in favor of the defendant, he said, no, that's, just, you know, that's the mysterious way that state courts works, and we're not going to step in and overturn it. I don't know how Gorsuch would rule in that case, but he's, he seems to be much more pragmatic. Uh, there was a case uh, involving a sales tax in Colorado that required out-of-state merchants who ships things to customers in Colorado to turn over to Colorado information about those customers. You know, it's the kind of thing that a Scalia, maybe uh, a good libertarian conservative, would you know grab his hair and go. <laughs> but um, Gorsuch said, "No, you know, this isn't. This doesn't violate what's called this, the Dormant Commerce Clause, which is sort of this judge-made theory that uh, states can't." impose laws that, that benefit their, their businesses at the expense of other ones. Gorsuch said, no, this doesn't, doesn't meet that test. And he was upheld by the Supreme Court. I think it's, um, it's typical of the kind of rulings that he makes. Now, I think you've written a little bit about the effect he could have on his fellow justices. So he is filling what was seen as, I think everyone can agree, was a, a conservative seat on the bench. Um, so what will he do how will he interact with his fellow justices? Will he, I guess he won't, if, if you're going by how the, the lines break down, he won't 
need to persuade Thomas, but how might he affect Justice Kennedy's thinking, perhaps? I don't know if anybody affects Justice Kennedy's thinking, (laughs) and I'm not an insider expert on how the court does its business, but I think he'll be firmly in the Roberts camp. I think faced with a unified front of four, maybe Kennedy would... um, Hugh more to the conservative side. Kennedy also was a bit of a loose cannon. Of course, he had the uh, uh, same-sex marriage decision, which I think conservatives again grab their hair and go, you know, <laughs> it's, just, it's sort of making up a constitutional right. Now, right or wrong, I, I don't think anybody would disagree that that right should exist, but whether it's in the Constitution is another question. Kennedy, uh, on the environmental business front, you know, we have the waters of the U.S., which the Obama administration handed down, which would have regulated uh, you know, every wet spot in the entire country um, based upon a Kennedy a single opinion that was the deciding opinion because it was 441, where he said, well, you know, I, I think the Clean Water Act may be unconstitutional, but on the other hand, maybe waters that have an essential nexus to navigable waterways should be regulated. I don't know. That kind of thing drives businesses crazy. And maybe, maybe a Gorsuch could uh, add to the to the weight, you know, of the conservative majority to say, "Come on, uh, Kennedy, come along with us." But on the other hand, Kennedy is very much his own man. The court was functioning well enough without a ninth justice, but of course, his appointment is long overdue because when there's a tie among eight justices, the decision reverts back to the lower courts, and no precedent is set. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so that's that's what happened with several big cases, including affirmative action. Um, and it, it changes the whole calculus of business defendants, because uh, like it or not, um, my, uh, my liberal cohorts in the press talk about pro-business courts. Well, there's not a lot of businesses that sue consumers. It's usually the other way around. So the big cases that come up to the Supreme Court, odds are it's going to be a business being sued by a consumer, a big guy being sued by a little guy. That's just the nature of it. Um, cases that the conservatives want to win they're less likely to bring them to an 8-8 court because the last thing you want to do is go all the way to the Supreme Court and lose or or have it kick back down with no resolution. Now with a 5-4 potential, I think you're going to see more interesting cases. The one that everybody, I think, has in mind is the California case uh, where teachers are, are um, challenging on First Amendment uh, freedom of association grounds their requirement to belong to a union. That one... Uh, didn't succeed the first time, but I, I bet you anything, if Gorsuch is seated, they'll tee up another version of that, because they're trying to get rid of a precedent that, um, that they think needs to be overturned. Earlier, you mentioned something about Chevron. You said we'd get back to it. What do we need to know there? Well, Chevron deference is a practical doctrine that Scalia was in favor of, I think a lot of federal judges would be in favor of, because it makes their life easier, in which a, a court is supposed to defer to uh, how a federal agency uh, makes it, interprets the law that, that governs its operations. So if Congress left an ambiguity in the law, the argument is, why have a judge decide that? Why not uh, have the agency decide it? And um, then, then the agency moves forward and everybody understands what it is. The problem is, as we've seen with this election, probably more than any other, then every time there's a change in administration, you have different interpretations of the law. So from a business predictability standpoint, you have no idea whether you're going to get hammered or get off free on the next uh, round of interpretations of the laws that affect your business every day. Gorsuch wrote a decision, interestingly enough, involving a Mexican illegal immigrant 
where he had relied upon the immigration authorities interpretation of a law saying that um, he could apply for special uh, uh, special exemption from the attorney general then the immigration authorities turned around and said no no, no we we've, we've reinterpreted this and you have to go out of the country for 10 years and then you can come back and apply and Gorsuch wrote a very strong concurrence to the opinion ruling in favor of this immigrant saying, you know, this isn't fair. Uh, this guy should be able to avail himself of a court, and the judge should be able to say what the law is. So Gorsuch wrote a fairly fiery concurrence saying that I think Chevron deference has gone too far. It's a behemoth. It's depriving people of their rights. If you're a business, it's like, well, I know all the people at the EPA. I know how they think. I deal with them every day. I think a lot of businesses maybe are just as happy having administrative agencies decide what the law is. But um, on the other hand, there are plenty of people, especially on the conservative side, that say Chevron's got out of hand. Uh, let's let, let's have judges uh, decide what the law is. It's it's a kind of a jump ball. Now we've been talking a lot about business because Forbes is a business magazine. But you mentioned earlier that if there is a business versus consumer case brought forth to the court, it's likely the little guy suing the big guy. On the left, some of the criticism is that Gorsuch has ruled in favor of business too often. So if I'm a consumer and I'm a little bit worried, what should I know about Judge Gorsuch? Should I be worried about how I can protect myself as a consumer going forward with him on the court? If you buy the line that class action lawyers are here to help you, uh, little consumer, that, that they're, they're going to they're represent you in court and give you your day in court, which I do not buy. I've written very strongly against that. But if you buy that premise, then, yeah, Gorsuch is not going to be your friend. Because he, uh, in, when he was in private practice, he wrote a pretty scathing article about class action lawyers. And uh, you can predict that when it's 5-4 again, they, more cases will come up to try to chip away at how class actions uh, proceed. And that's the primary way small consumer cases are brought. So uh, he is not going to be friendly to those. And uh, the opponents of class actions are going to tee up cases designed to get those five votes to, to achieve some goal, just as the court did, the Roberts court did with uh, American Express uh, versus Italian Colors and other cases that made it harder for class action lawyers to do their business. So, yeah, you're not going to find much there if you're a consumer advocate. That said, he, he, he has ruled for the, quote, little guy repeatedly. Uh, I think the case that got the most notice uh, was uh, a uh, Native American prisoner who um, argued that he should be able to uh, use a sweat lodge. And um, citing RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Act, uh, the judge agreed with him and said the prison, uh, you know, regardless of the expense, the prison has to make this available for him. So he's not, you know, he's not a lockstep pro-establishment uh, jurist. No, and I think religious freedom was part of his uh, rationale in the Hobby Lobby ruling, correct? Yes, Hobby Lobby, you know, I, I think that that one got, well, I don't know how distorted it got, but yes, he, he wrote that decision. It was unanimous on the Tenth Circuit. It went to the Supreme Court. It It was upheld by the Supreme Court. All that case is really about is Congress wrote this incredibly broad law to protect the rights of uh, Native Americans who wanted to use peyote and were fired from their job as drug counselors, I think, if memory serves, uh, <clears throat> because they violated the illegal drug uh, provision of their employment. And Congress got so angry at how the Supreme Court uh, decided that that they wrote this incredibly broad law that just says you cannot infringe upon the a person's religious practice 
unless there's no other way to accomplish you know whatever important goals you have. He's he applied that law. Uh, Hobby Lobby is very controversial, but it essentially extended this to uh, companies that are controlled by people with strong religious feelings. And that, just to be clear for people who weren't following as closely as you were, the Hobby Lobby was specifically over contraception and whether or not the craft store Hobby Lobby had to provide it for employees. And they are a um, a religious, a religiously based company. Yeah, and a classic, classic conflict between rights, obviously. The, the right of a woman uh, to, to use contraception and the right of a person who thinks contraception is a terrible thing to not pay for it. And um, the Obama administration sort of, it's not, it's not in the Affordable Care Act, but the Obama administration interpreted it, Chevron deference, to uh, require contraception. And these uh, religious institutions pushed back, starting with the Catholic Church and ending with whoever it is that owns Hobby Lobby. It may be a controversial reading of RIFRA, but RIFRA is an incredibly broad law. And as, you know, as I said, the Supreme Court upheld it, so uh, I don't think it was entirely unreasonable. I think that was his defense when uh, Senator Durbin pressed him on it during the confirmation hearings. Those were fun. Uh, he he <laughs> Those certainly were fun. showed a competitive streak there uh, behind all of that uh, aw shucks uh, Colorado backcountry uh, charm. Uh, he definitely wanted to, wanted to be known when he had won. All right, Dan, play the role of judge for a minute. What is your ultimate ruling on Gorsuch? I'm a fan of Gorsuch because I'm a fan of Roberts. I, I'm a pragmatist, and I, I like what Roberts has done. I would not be a fan of Gorsuch at all if I was more in favor of um, greater uh, deference by regulatory agencies, if I, if I thought that um, you know, the EPA uh, was doing a good job and, and needed the freedom to really go after businesses that it felt were uh, violating uh, the rules of the environment. Uh, Americ Gardland would have been infinitely better for uh, that conception of government. And there is a dramatic difference between the two on, on questions like that. So Merrick Gardland, for a someone with a conventional view of how government should function, uh, you know, anybody, really, we're talking anybody from the moderate right to, to the left, Garland would have been uh, a much better choice for them. I don't have a problem with Gorsuch, but that's because I'm a more conservative Forbes writer. But there is a difference. There is a big difference, and there is a reason why the, the Republicans rolled the dice on, on winning this election, and that was a huge roll of the dice, but they didn't really have a lot of downside, um, uh, and, uh, and, and put off for this, this choice. Gorsuch will be a dramatically different impact on this court. And what about the average apolitical American? There's been a ton of highly charged rhetoric around all of this. At the end of the day, how should they feel about Judge Gorsuch? I think totally comfortable. I've read a, a number of his decisions. They are uh, very well reasoned, uh, and I, I wouldn't worry about him any more than I would worry about Justice Sonia, Sonia Sotomayor, who got a lot of bad press from the right. And you know what? She's just a good, solid federal appeals court judge who advanced the Supreme Court, good thinker, good writer. I'd say Gorsuch is in the same camp, maybe a little bit different politics, a few different views, but um, just an outstanding jurist. Great. Well, I think we will leave it there. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. 
Hi, I'm Clay Smith, host of Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews, the podcast for book lovers interested in interviews with best-selling authors, insider scoop on the hottest releases, reading ideas for book clubs and bibliophiles, and even tips about which books to skip altogether. So be sure to download new episodes of Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews every Tuesday. You can get it on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for ten dollars. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scotts mulch for just ten dollars. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through four seventeen. Not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on nineteen ounce pots. See store for details. U.S. only. Joining us now is Matt Herper. He's a senior editor at Forbes who covers science and medicine. Matt, thanks for joining us. I know you've had a busy morning. Thanks for having me. The FDA has a potential new commissioner, and you have just come from watching that hearing all day? Yes, well, uh, only in the morning. Uh, Scott Gottlieb, he actually was a Forbes contributor as well. Um, He'd worked at the FDA uh, in the early 2000s. He's a doctor and a cancer survivor. And he'd been kind of a longtime fixture in the conservative kind of think tank world on health care policy and on the FDA. He was, of the choices that were floated in the press, the least extreme of the potential FDA commissioners. And a lot of what he was saying at his hearing was that he's generally very supportive of the evidence standards in the law and actually talked a lot about the need for bottom-up management so that a lot of ideas have to come from the rank and file. The FDA is a 17,000-person agency. They're huge. And one of the arguments that I had made about some of the other uh, more libertarian candidates is you can't take someone with no experience in an agency that big and throw them in and expect to get anything done. Even if you do want to deregulate, you mm-hmm. need to have. And there are specific laws about the FDA. For instance, with drugs, the law, the Kefauver Amendments, which basically created the modern FDA after the thalidomide scandal, the law says drugs have to be safe and effective. So you can mess with what that means. You can change what that means. But you can't say, well, we're just going to approve based on safety. And then there's this whole world of guidances and policies that's built up over the years the commissioner doesn't usually work on the level of individual FDA drug approvals. That's done by drug reviewers. It was interesting. He caught a really nice broadside from Elizabeth Warren, who brought up a National Journal piece where he seemed to talk about the thalidomide uh, experience, where there was a a drug that was used in morning sickness that wound up causing birth defects famously. Mm. Later on became a cancer drug, showing that drug can be very dangerous in one indication, can be amazingly useful in another. But uh, he kind of bad-mouthed it in this old piece, and she dug it up and kind of threw it in his face in one of the more dramatic moments in the hearing. He's widely expected to be confirmed. The general argument, industry likes him a lot. The left may not like him as much, particularly people who are concerned about drug safety, but having been somewhat frightened by some of the alternatives and having other battles to fight, it seems unlikely that he's not going to make it through, but no one can predict these days. 
I feel like caring about drug safety is not a right or a left concern. So I will ask you, why would people on the left who are concerned about drug safety perhaps Everybody have some- cares that drugs are both safe and effective. The question is always how much, how expensive are you willing to make the drug development process? And how much data do you need to prove a medicine is safe before you're willing to try it out in the market? Traditionally, the right has been speaking very generally, um, and there are notable exceptions, but the right has been more interested in what some economists call the invisible graveyard, which is the people who die because you don't get them drugs fast enough. And the left has been more likely to be concerned about it's actually kind of another invisible graveyard that there are people dying from side effects and we're not tracking them and we don't know and we find out that drugs are dangerous. No drug, well, there may be some safe drugs, but there are very few of them. Most drugs are have risks and they also have benefits and you balance the risks and the benefits. And this ends up being a debate about how you do that. And there are real consequences to deciding that you're going to make it more difficult to develop drugs for diabetes. Um, if the if the market for new medicines becomes smaller than the cost of developing them, obviously no one is going to do that. And we have there are worries that that's happening in heart disease right now. There have been a bunch of new heart drugs that took billions of dollars each to get to market, and they're having sales and they're disappointing Wall Street in a big way. So that's that's kind of the balance you see. Uh, there. So the fear with some of the more extreme candidates was that they would deregulate the agency such that the approval process would be faster? There was actually a venture capitalist who worked with Peter Thiel named Jim O'Neill who was put forward as a potential candidate for uh, the FDA. And he had said publicly that he thought that if the drugs are safe, why not just approve them? Which is not the way it works, which was the concern. Industry really didn't like that. That's a level of deregulation that the industry being regulated didn't want. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another uh, name that was thrown out. We found out about him when he was having a meeting with Trump, who was another venture capitalist at um, Andreessen, Balaji Srinivasan, who I'd actually debated with on Twitter, and he'd argued that, look, insulin was developed in just a couple years. That was back in like the 1920s. We really don't know whether or not you're safe, whether or not we're be- we'd be better off with fewer barriers to getting these drugs to market. Um, there are counterfactuals in that you look at, for instance, the Indian drug market where there's a lot less, um, there's less regulation. There's also ones that being less innovation, that there, it does seem that giving companies a bar to jump over that your drug must actually work results in drugs that work. Um, but this is kind of a continual debate. If we could remove some of these regulatory hurdles, would we get drugs to people faster? And maybe they just wouldn't use the ones that were unsafe, or we'd find out and we'd remove them from the market. But because we'd be reducing the total cost of developing a drug, we'd get more drugs, and we'd get more drugs that helped people. And we're actually harming people by having standards that are too high. It seems very clear that the Trump administration would like large amounts of deregulation. Trump's talked about taking the number of pages of laws, uh, of regulations down dramatically. How the FDA acts is not always as dependent on the president as one would think. Uh, The FDA has to worry a lot about the opposition party. They're often not that protected by the rest of the executive branch. And it also is an agency that is 
driven very much by the the scientists who work there and by their um and all those all that bureaucracy that's there and all the rules and all the laws and changing something like drug regulation dramatically is hard to do. Where Gottlieb's likely to be focusing his effort, he's gonna he he made a big point that he thought opioids were something he needed to look at, and he seemed to implicate that maybe that's an area that maybe the FDA's barrier standards for pain drugs have, for instance, been too high because we need other pain drugs, and maybe we're not putting in that risk benefit the risk of people becoming addicted to opioids. He also has talked a lot about complex generics, which are things like EpiPen or asthma inhalers. Generic drugs are usually approved by the FDA based on they take a blood test and uh, they give healthy people the branded drug and the generic and they give them blood tests and the amount of the active ingredient in your blood is supposed to be the same. That doesn't work with a delayed release formulation. It doesn't work with an EpiPen. It doesn't work with um, an inhaler. All these things aren't done by blood test and the FDA often then has trouble coming up with generics which is why they're one of the reasons that there wasn't an EpiPen competitor. Um, so when those prices spiked as much as we saw last year, there was... These classes of drugs are a great place if you're a valiant pharmaceuticals or something like that to buy one and to raise the price because there may be people or that will only take the branded version or there may not be an ability to make a generic and you get to keep that branded price forever and uh, there's no competition. So he talked uh he talked a bit about that too. So broadly, if mm-hmm. I'm an American listening to this podcast and I'm wondering what will the future of healthcare look like under this FDA commissioner assuming he is confirmed and I'm worried about my generics or I'm worried about my name brand drugs, what would you tell that person? We're always going to be watching for a drug safety scandal for there to be drugs that are risky. I think that you're likely to see things much more on not in something as central as drug regulation, although you may see some new drugs that wouldn't have been approved before getting approved. The bigger questions will be what happens on these complex generics, which could be good. We could get more generics that we need so long as the standards show that they're safe and effective. E-cigarettes could be a big issue, which was discussed, because the FDA has been treating them a lot like traditional tobacco, and Gottlieb seems much more open to the idea that they could be seen as risk mitigation. Again, that's something that's going to be thrown down to the agency's scientists as an idea or as a, let's reconsider the way these regulations are written. He's not going to go in and say by fiat. It's not usually how the political process works. If he were to, it would be a big story. Uh, There may be some way to look at genetic testing, you know, things like 23andMe that some may have thought were overregulated. It will definitely be a largely deregulatory space unless something like a drug safety scandal happens. One thing that, that is worth remembering is that there was a big deregulatory push at the beginning of the Bush administration on the FDA that were trying to speed up drug approvals, probably a lot less pressure from the executive branch than we're going to see now. Then Vioxx happened, uh, which was a arthritis drug that caused heart problems and was withdrawn from the market by its maker. And there were controversies about antidepressants and suicide being linked. And 
There was a whole series, Bacol, a statin taken by a lot of people, a cholesterol drug, was withdrawn from the market. And when all these drug safety scandals popped up, and you also wound up having uh, more Democratic voices uh, compared to the Republicans, the FDA actually clamped up to a really big degree. And in some cases, for instance, with antibiotics, maybe overdid it because you had a period where you couldn't get an antibiotic approved and we desperately need them. So just what one says is going to happen isn't necessarily what is going to happen. Making predictions is very difficult, especially about the future, as the <laughs> apocryphal saying. But goes. I guess I would go back to the thing that you said at the beginning that's comforting to me, because there is so much upheaval in government mm-hmm. right now. You have new heads of all of these departments. The FDA is a 17,000 employee deep The agency. size of the FDA and the number of things it has to do and the lack of political prominence of it most of the time will all act to keep really dramatic changes from happening. And that's actually partly what happened with the choice of commissioner. The Trump team apparently considered some really out-of-the-box choices. And they went with one of the guys who would have been on the shortlist for any Republican administration. Um, I mean, the most conservative thing they could have done would have been to have left Robert Califf, who was a very prominent cardiologist, one of the biggest names in heart disease ever, in charge of the agency. He'd only been there about a year. They didn't do that. They wanted to go with a conservative libertarian choice. Mm -hmm. But when they looked down the list, they went with the least radical of those libertarian choices. Why does industry like him so much? He's consulted with a lot of them for a long time. He's given them advice. So there's just the fact that they know him. Uh, He's generally been very industry friendly uh, throughout his career. It probably does mean some lowering of the bar for approvals, but not too much. You know, they want Leonard Schleifer, who's the billionaire chairman, CEO, founder of Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, which makes a drug for blindness, macular degeneration. You know, he made the argument uh, to me at one point that you know, I want there to be a high enough standard that when I walk in with data and I'm competing against Pfizer, it's about the science, not the marketing. I can win on the science. I can't win on the marketing. The industry generally doesn't want to just be able to get their drugs approved instantly. The cancer division, the oncology division, approves stuff fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would very much like um, to have everybody be as fast as that, but they're not looking for wholesale deregulation. In fact, they very much don't want it. Well, I think... We'll leave it there. Matt, thanks so much. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of Forbes on Trump. I'm Maggie McGrath. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to get in touch with a comment or a question, email us at ForbesOnTrump at PodcastOne.com. Everyone sells today. So how do you bring your best sales game every day? Simple. Listen to the Advanced Selling Podcast on Podcast One. Hi, I'm Bill Kasky. And I'm Brian Neal. Each week, we answer listener questions like, how do I compete against a cheap competitor? And Brian's favorite, because he always has an answer to this, how do I meet with a CEO when they won't even return my calls? The Advanced Selling Podcast is where the best go to get better. Listen Mondays on Podcast One and on iTunes. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our Spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our Spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. 
Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.